Welcome, welcome, welcome to a very exciting episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spendlove, and I'm joined with the ever-amazing Steve Lowry. How are you, Steve? I'm great. How are you doing, Chris? Doing well. Finals are behind us uh, and uh, feeling good. Feeling good. Finals are behind you, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I slept about 14 hours last night. Yes, that is a good sleep, I can tell you, because... I had a similar sleep. So, well, our sleep habits aside, we are very excited uh, today to be joined by the fabulous Akua Asabil, uh, who's coming to us with the state AG's office. And she's an incredible friend of the law school. And we're very excited to have her. Akua, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you. Uh, this is a real treat. We have gotten to meet Akua a couple times through the boot camps uh, that you've heard us talk about and, and uh, that are offered here at the law school. Uh, and so when I was doing the boot camp this fall uh, and Akua was one of kind of, I mean, it was like a, what, two to one ratio or but something that like that. Really good this time around. Yeah. Yeah. We, it was, we were in small groups. You heard me talk on our episode about the boot camp. Uh, about how Akua and Ryan Calvert were kind of my mentors, my camp counselors over the weekend, whatever you want to say. Uh, and we we got to work together. And and so I had to just ask her at the end if she'd come on the podcast. We just had to have her. So we're really, really grateful that you uh, agreed to come on. So very sweet. Thank you. Well, Akua, um, we would love to hear about your career, how you got started, uh, what you're doing and, you know, what, what you have done and what you're currently doing. Um, and just kind of, yeah, the story of, of how you got to where you are now with your career. Sure. Um, you know, I actually am kind of an unconventional story. Um, I don't have this. I wish I had this great story about how my granddad was a judge and my dad was a prosecutor or something like that. But actually, I had zip zero, nada, no plans whatsoever on being a lawyer. Um, I was going to be, well, once I auditioned for Real World and I didn't get on and get casted, I was going to be like a superstar, though. I was going to be a writer and maybe I was going to end up on like one of these shows being a pundit of some sort. I was going to do everything but law school. Um, and I am first, I'm first generation American. My parents are from Ghana, West Africa. Um, and if you know anything about immigrant parents, there's only three jobs, engineer, lawyer, doctor, that's it. Um, and so my mother was like, that's really cute that you think you're going to do all those things, but you, my dear, are either going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer pick. Um, and so I definitely, um, had no plans. I mean, I went to law school. I kind of, I was not the best student. I mean, I ended up, I actually ended up pretty high up in the class, but I didn't really try. I didn't. I wasn't looking for internships like everybody else. I wasn't trying to clerk for a judge. I was just doing this to get along. <laughs> and um, I had really no designs on doing anything because it seemed so abstract to me because the law, as it's being taught in law school, I didn't see the practical application of it. I didn't see the day-to-day, -day what, what effect does this have on, on normal people? I just didn't see that. So I was not interested whatsoever. Um, in my third year, however, though, I took a, um, a clinic and it was a juvenile clinic and I was representing a juvenile in the East Baton Rouge Parish. Um, I went to law school at LSU, so um, we were in parishes. And I think that was the first time I was like, oh, this stuff actually has an application to like 
common person. Um, and from there, I was like, well, if I'm going to be a lawyer, then it has to be something where I'm actually touching the community, whether it's in criminal defense or whether it's in you know legal aid, whether it's a prosecutor, whatever it is, I needed to be dealing with the community. Um, and so I definitely kind of came alive second semester of third year, which is not when you want to come alive. You want to come alive way before then. Um, so it took me a while. I, I will... I probably have, like I said, a very different story because it took me a while to get into a district attorney's office. Um, I went to school in Louisiana. I took the bar in Texas. Nobody thought I was going to pass because I went to school in Louisiana. So I'd made absolutely no efforts to make connections in Texas. So nobody, nobody knew me to take a chance on me. Um, I ended up going into the attorney general's office doing child support. That was my first job out of law school. Um, and after a year of that, I was like, I'm going to shoot myself like this. This is awful. This is literally the worst job ever. Um, family law is not for the faint of heart. It will it will take you through some things. Um, the maddest I've had people be at me is behind child support and not behind sending people to prison, which is crazy. But um, from there, I worked my way into the DA's office in Smith County in Tyler, Texas. Um, I did misdemeanor work there. I loved it. I just wanted to go to trial on everything. I didn't want to make plea offers because I wanted to go to trial every day. Um, it was so much fun. Um, and from there, I went to Cherokee County, which is an even smaller county um, in East Texas. And then from there, Brazos County, and then from Brazos to the Attorney General's office in Austin. Um, and so what, what kept me in it, what kind of grounded me to it was the common just the application of the law to, to common people. And, and when I got into the DA's office, I realized, you know, there's not a lot of prosecutors who look like me. There are not a lot of prosecutors with my background. Um, and there are a lot of victims who do look like me and do have my background. And uh, somebody has to be in this office that can relate to, understand, um, reach across, you know, these differences to, to, um, meet the needs of those victims in those communities. And so um, I very much got kind of sucked into this idea of I'm never going to be anything but a prosecutor. And I've kind of stuck with that. Um, I'm probably going to be a lifelong prosecutor. Um, I can't see myself practicing any other kind of law. This is what drives me. It's what moves me. It is, you know, it is the thing that keeps me grounded in this work because you don't make a lot of money. You don't make a lot of friends. Uh, people get upset at you all the time. Um, I do domestic violence. My victims hate me. <laughs> they don't want me in their business. They want to go back into this abusive cycle. And, you know, the thing that has to ground you is you have to love what you're doing. And for me, plucking somebody whose violence is affecting the entirety of a family out of that family drives me. Um, and so that's, right. that's kind of my story in a quick nutshell, but yes. Yeah. Wow, that's really amazing. I think there's a lot there, you know, for anybody, right. Just kind of the regular, uh, garden variety law student who's trying to figure out what the heck they're going to do with their life. Uh, there's, we have, I know we have a lot, especially uh, in our society, a lot of members of our society who are, I guess what you would say, non-traditional students, myself included, you know, yeah. coming to law school when I'm 30 and I've got a wife and two kids. And mm -hmm. this is a second life for me because I, I felt the same way that you were just describing. I was, you know, working in the advertising industry and thought every day would be uh, let's say the 21st century version of Mad Men, a lot less smoking and drinking and sexual harassment in the office, but cool, right? Like that <laughs> cool factor. And while that was true in a lot of respects, I just, I kept beating my head against the wall. Like, 
what am I doing? What impact is this having on anybody's life? You know? And so I feel like a lot of our students can, can glom onto that as well. And just feel like, you know, this career path, if you're feeling like something's missing or you feel like, gosh, yeah, all these other areas of the law that we're studying are interesting and there's a lot here, but what does this do on the day to day? You know, I, th- I think what you, what you've been saying is really, um, really helpful in that respect. Um, so you mentioned that you have really dug into family violence and that's kind of become your thing. Can you talk to us a little bit about, um, I know that you were, you were saying like as a misdemeanor prosecutor, you were just trying to get to trial, get to trial yeah. all the time, which is yeah. great. I mean, I, I, I think that's awesome. Hey, why, you know, why skip out on the best part of being yeah. a prosecutor, which is, you know, being in the courtroom all the time. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you came to, find that as your niche? Was it, you just decided that you wanted to take all these cases. And so you were, I mean, I don't want to tell your story for you, no, but no, how, how did you come to that um, kind of specialization or, or niche? Well, you know, in misdemeanor court, um, one of the things I realized really quickly was there's really two offenses that will always go to trial, DWIs and assault family violence. Um, I am of the belief that once you try one DWI, you, you know, there's not going to be a whole lot of variation in those. Uh, family violence, though, is really complex because I don't care where you're from, what you do, what education level you have, where your family's from, what religion you are. There is domestic abuse across the board. And what form it takes is so interesting, depending on on kind of your background. Um, And so I got a lot of exposure just trying the cases from being in misdemeanor court. And there's a common thread, right? There's a common thread of somebody just being a bully. You're just a bully. And I don't like bullies. Um, I bully the bully. That's kind of the way I think about it. You know, there's a common thread of being able to come into a household or come into a relationship and completely dominate another human being. And thinking that you have the right to do that is it's just beyond me. Um, So I grew up in Houston and my parents immigrated to the States in um, the late seventies and the early eighties. And um, in immigrant populations, you kind of remain in your pop, in your, in your, um, community. And so most of the kids that I grew up with were first generation African um, as well. And this is a pervasive issue in our community. Um, I can think of four or five families I grew up with where domestic abuse was just at the forefront. We all knew it was happening. Uh, There were strong men that were friends with these men and nobody was stepping in. Nobody was stepping in. Mm -hmm. And that stuff has a trickle down effect to the kids. I saw my friends who couldn't really relate to or have relationships with their own fathers because their fathers were abusive. Um, and so in my mind, part of what got to me was, I kind of go back to childhood. I think of my, my friends, I think about the people that I've known who have been in this situation. And I'm like, yeah, no, somebody has to stand in and somebody has to say enough. Um, it's not always about putting somebody in prison. Um, I recognize that generally you talk to a lot of prosecutors and we are very hard line about whether people can be rehabilitated or reformed. I think this is an offense that a lot of people can be Uh, rehabilitated uh, from. Mm -hmm. Not everyone. There are some people who are just abusive. They're just going to be violent. It does not matter how you uh, slice it. But there are some people who just don't have the tools to realize how to handle conflict. Um, They don't have the emotional capacity to even be in a relationship. And you don't know that until you go through the process of trying to rehabilitate them. And so I think it's really interesting that 
you know, you get to go in there. You don't necessarily get to kick the crap out of everybody. Um, not every defendant is going to be going to prison. A lot of them are going to be going on probation. A lot of them are going to be going through the batterers intervention program. They're going to be going through counseling, anger management. And sometimes that's just what you need um, mm-hmm. to fix that family unit. And so um, I guess it gives me the opportunity to be a bit of a social worker. And then when I want to be, you know, GI Joe, I get to be GI Joe as well. So uh, I I like that, that, that combination. I also am somebody who is, I don't have children, but I've got a a great deal of love and affection for children. And I just want kids to be able to be kids. I want you to grow up without the baggage of what your parents are going through dumped all on your shoulders. Um, If we can, if we can take an abuser out of a household or we can rehabilitate an abusive uh, parent, maybe that child won't grow up to be a victim themselves or a perpetrator. Uh, so that's kind of the thing that that draws me in. And it's 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 a uh, not a, a caseload that a lot of prosecutors like. Um, it's sure. not it's not easy to constantly be the bad guy all the time when you're the only one doing the right thing. But you are doing the right thing, and that is what to me is so um, fun about it. I also enjoy the fact that they're not easy cases to try. Um, almost every case that I have is a loser, and I'm still going to try it. Because I believe that there's evidence to prove the offense occurred beyond a reasonable doubt, whether or not the victim wants to participate or whether or not all the family members want to get involved. I got an obligation. I'm going to take my obligation on. Um, and so I, I, those are the kind of challenges that I love about it. And then kind of the theory or the, or the reasons behind why it kind of touched my heart so much. Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's, it's evident from what you're talking about that what really is driving you I mean, it's, it's a, it's a collection of things, right? Your own personal experiences, the, the belief that you have in, in the goodness of people and that people can change, right? The, the belief that like you're saying, children don't deserve to grow up like that. And I think that that's really important. I mean, I, in Limestone County over the summer, I saw a couple of cases where the victim was completely unsympathetic and the, Bless her heart. One of the, one of the witnesses perjured herself on the stand, tried to cover for her mom and like all this stuff. And it's just like, it's, it's a monumental task, you know, to try to tackle that, but so important, right. For those reasons and really grounding yourself uh, is what I think I hear you saying, you know, in your principles in, in keeping your eye on the prize. I mean, um, that's so important, you know, to, to keep that. I think as a prosecutor too, you know, I know that the, I get it there. The desire is the ego wants, I mean, you, you want to win, you want to win. You want to get a big pop. You want to send somebody down to prison and you want people to be like, yeah, I'm scared of that prosecutor. I get it. I get it. Um, it's not about that to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and maybe that, maybe that's not a great thing. I don't know. But for me, that's just not what it's about. I mean, it's a bigger call to me. We have an obligation to seek justice. What is justice? Justice can't be allowing the guy who's able to best control the victim to win. Like, we just can't have that happening. Like, just because you've been successful in scaring her out of testifying, that that you shouldn't benefit from that. That's not how this works. Um, So yeah, I I sympathize with you having watched that, that Limestone County mess because I've had that happen. I've had them come in and bring um, a friend of theirs to take ownership of causing all the injury. Like you're on the witness stand committing, committing perjury and admitting to committing an offense to save a violent person. 
have we all gone mad? Like, <laughs> has everyone lost their minds? I mean, wow. uh, I remember trying a case in Brazos, um, probably the case that meant the most to me to try there. It was, um, it was a um, aggravated assault, deadly weapon. And this defendant just had a brutal history. He would pick up women who had drug issues, um, prostitution um, background. He would get them clean. You know, I'm going to take care of you. You don't need a job. Give me that cell phone. You don't need that cell phone. You don't need to work. You don't need to call your family. They're bad for you. And over time, controlling, controlling, isolating, isolating, and incredibly violent. Beat a woman, um, tied her up like a dog, gave her food out of a dog bowl. I mean, tied her up for days, wow. took her out of the, the place where he was carrying her, where he was keeping her, and was taking her down the highway and was saying, I'm going to take you out to the country. And she was so afraid that she was going to die. She jumped out of a moving vehicle, okay, barefoot. That's a guy who got away with it for years, several victims. But because they were so unsavory, nobody really wanted to do much with them. They would go missing. They would stop returning the detective's calls. They would leave the um, Phoebe's home, which is the uh, domestic violence shelter in Brazos. They would leave and go off with the defendant. One of them told the defendant where the Phoebe's home is, which is like the biggest no-no ever. You never tell uh, where that location is. I mean, they were just not great victims. And so what is the, what is your point? I don't care that they're not great victims. Am I supposed to wait until he kills one of these women? It, It just was, it was absolutely bizarre, but he had a good friend of his come in, take the witness in and say, yes, I beat her up. I'm the one that chipped her tooth. I'm the one that busted up her lip because I didn't like her. What? <laughs> wow. Man. Man. Sat up there and perjured herself multiple times. I mean, it's bizarre, but it's the level of manipulation that I just find so fascinating. Um, I didn't yeah. mean to go off on a tangent, but no, that's, <laughs> it, there's so yeah. much to chew on there. I mean, it's, it, it's, an, it's insane. Hmm. The amount yeah. of manipulation that these people um, can, I guess, employ, you know, you, we talk about in, in a child sex abuse cases, the way that the perpetrator um, grooms the entire family, it's the exact same process in, in domestic abuse. We just don't talk about it to the same extent, right? Because yeah. if most people, if you're walking down the street and you see somebody being assaulted, you're either gonna call the police, you're gonna scream out to have the person stop. If you're a big enough man, you're probably going to get involved. You wouldn't just walk away from that. Why is it this very same people will see a loved one or a friend assaulting their loved one and do absolutely nothing because you've been groomed to mind your own business. Yeah. It is, it yeah, is right. bonkers to me. Bonkers. I've, I've always heard it said, you know, if you see something, say something. And uh, also, I just want to say that listening to your story, I have chills uh, um, for, for what you do, ma'am. Um, uh, it's awesome what you do uh, helping people. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, you know, see something, say something. And I, I think that, um, too many people don't do that. You would be surprised. You know, yeah. it's kind of like the Kitty Genovese story back in the thirties. You remember that story? Um, she's screaming for help. She's being yeah. stabbed mm-hmm. and attacked mm-hmm. and multiple people see and hear it. And no one calls the police. It's just, it's insane. It is insane. The number of times, you know, I will have a domestic abuse case where maybe, uh, maybe the victim comes into work and somebody calls the police because she's gotten, you know, marks and whatever. Um, and she won't come forward and testify. And I always say, 
go and find the neighbors. I'm telling you, somebody has heard or seen something multiple times and never called the police and without fail, without fail, there's a neighbor who's like, yeah, I hear him beating her all the time. You never called the police. Gosh. It, it's waiting. It's, yeah. <laughs> waiting for the right thing to be done in a passive sense instead of waiting to do the right thing. That's interesting. Yeah. I want to, I want to um, zoom in on that a little bit because my next thought is I'm curious how you present these cases to juries uh, in the voir dire process. And then throughout the case, you said, you know, you, you take a lot of losers to trial, you know, you've got an uphill battle to fight. And, and as the, as the state, you know, you've got the burden of proof. So it's an uphill battle anyway. Um, but I, I'm curious how you present those cases, because to me, it would be like, you need to know that this is going on in our community or, you know, how many times have you seen this, that other thing? So I'm really curious how you, how you walk that line between, you know, implying everybody has seen something and not done something versus, uh, you know, this is a real problem in our community. You know, um, and, and I know you're going to, I think you're going to have Ryan Calvert on your show at some point. Um, the great Ryan Calvert, as I like to call well, him, he's yes. one of the best, um, injury selection I've ever seen in my, in my life and probably one of the best in the state. Um, and I think that Ryan working with Ryan in Brazos County taught me a lot about how to identify an appropriate juror, right? Um, a lot of times you think it's about educating the jury. Sometimes it is in these cases, I don't want to waste any time educating you. I want to know what are your preconceived notions? You tell me what does domestic abuse look like to you? What is the appropriate response? Why do people behave the way that they do in domestic abuse situations? And what are you expecting to see? Because it makes no difference how many times I educate you on the law. If you don't inherently have a belief that the state should be getting involved, if the victim doesn't want to get involved, then we are going to be walking into a loser. Um, I also spend quite a bit of time talking to everybody about, hey, what has your experience been in life or your friends or your family's experience with domestic abuse? That is where most of the education comes from. The jurors will educate one another. You know, I had an aunt who kept getting beat up and um, we kept calling the police and she kept going back to him and it frustrated me. But finally she left and I'm so glad. Right. Or you'll have somebody who says, yeah, my daughter kept getting beat up and I went out there a couple of times. And after the second time, I just done with it. And I don't want any parts of it. Well, that's a person that no matter what is not going to be with me. So you mm -hmm. need to right. be not on my jury. Um, and I want the other jurors around to say, yeah, I agree with that. Or no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I would have a totally different response. And so in jury selection, I spend the bulk of my time talking about what has your experience been with domestic abuse? What do you think about the state interfering in family affairs? I want to find out from a religious standpoint, are you somebody who says, let the church deal with that? Are you somebody who doesn't agree with divorce? If you are, maybe this isn't the case for you because you're going to hold it against my victim if she wants to get a divorce or if she didn't get a divorce and she could have gotten a divorce. I want to make sure that I know what your beliefs are and you tell me who you are so then I can make a decision as to whether you're an appropriate juror for this case. Um, I think sometimes with like a murder or an aggravated assault, you want to spend some time teaching jurors hey, this is what the law is. This is what self-defense looks like. This is um, what the elements are and what I have to prove. But with domestic abuse, scratch all that. How do you feel about it? Tell me, you tell yeah. me. And if yeah. you're, I've had people say, well, I mean, what if 
you know, what if the victim has, or the person who got beat up, what if they have provoked you by what they said? You're not going to ever be appropriate for a domestic abuse case because words alone are not provocation. We know that. So you've already told me that words are provocation for you and that's sufficient to be assaulted. So you cannot be on this jury. So it's a little bit of, um, and and I'm not going to do a whole lot on jury selection because that is absolutely his wheelhouse and we'll not steal that from, from Mr. Calvert. I want you guys to get that information directly from him, but truly it is about knowing what kind of juror am I dealing with? How do people in general talk about and think about these types of cases? And then how do I identify, um, those people from, from their life experiences? Um, uh, I can tell you that the Ray Rice situation, do y'all remember that when he assaulted his uh, wife in the elevator? My God, a family violence prosecutor's dream. There it was illustrated for everyone. He beat her on video. He knocked her out cold on video and she apologized to him and married. Oh, do we all understand now what domestic abuse looks like? You know, uh, I used to put photos of him up, just a photo. And somebody would invariably be like, oh my God, I remember that. And it was crazy. Why did she do that? Well, let's talk about why people do this. It was a great example. I actually have taken it out of my board. I need to put it back in because it, it's a great conversation piece. Um, it, it's just, so that is where you start. Um, I don't educate people because there are some offenses for which people just don't want to be educated. And I think this is one. Um, adult sexual assaults are also another. Certain offenses because of the public conversation, it's not worth me trying to educate you. I just need you to tell me who you are and what, what it is you care about. Um, and so that's yeah. how we start our, our cases. You know, it's funny, Gabby uh, Massey, who's one of my, my really good friends and my kind of permanent trial partner, <laughs> but she and I've tried a number of sexual abuse of children and um, assault family violence cases. And we talk about it all the time. We spend the first hour, just tell me about who you are. And then maybe mm-hmm. 10 minutes about here are the elements of the offense, because yeah. if you don't like this victim and you don't like this offense, it doesn't matter what the elements are for you. So, it, it, so that's kind of how the, the theory of how to pick those juries works for me. Um, and then I carry that through the trial, right? So if you, if yeah. in jury selection, you talk to me about the fact that your aunt was a victim and that she was really isolated from the family and that she didn't have a job or a cell phone. If my, if that's a fact for me in this case, we're talking about that lack of cell phone every five minutes. So tell me about yeah. when you tried to call her and could you get a hold of her? Yeah, I'm going to do that all through the trial. And at closing argument, I'm going to wrap that up for you. We talked about isolation and jury selection. Y'all told me about people not having access to their family because they were isolated. Let's refer that to the facts of this case. And so that, that is kind of the, the, the draw. I mean, everybody, I don't care where you go. Everyone knows somebody who's been in a domestic abuse situation. Everybody, even if it's parent to child, everybody knows somebody that has been abused by a loved one. And that is that, that in and of itself speaks to the fact of how pervasive this offense is. But also they've all already made decisions about what they think about the offense. And so it's going to be super easy to get people to talk about it. I, I find very little trouble getting people to talk about their personal experience with it because people have strong opinions on it, whether or not they want to admit it. Yeah. That's a really interesting distinction at being such a, almost like a gut check kind of thing. Like everybody walks in and there's like, you're saying some crimes, some offenses, you really have to lay out the elements and like, this is how it's distinguished from this other similar type of offense. But this one, it's like almost a sniff test or like, Mm -hmm. you know, it when you see it or you've got your own preconceived notions, that's really, 
it's really an interesting uh, distinction. Uh, the other thing that you were mentioning that I, I wanted to, to kind of uh, circle back on was, you know, well, let me put it this way. One thing Elena talked to us a lot about was the difference between just straight like family violence, you know, and intimate partner violence cases. Um, and she's really, that's become her niche, you know, is, is intimate partner violence. And she's, she mentioned uh, in our interview some specific reasons for that. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your experience across those? Because family violence can take on a lot of flavors, right? Adult brothers beating each other up at Thanksgiving dinner uh, or, or anything like that. But how, how do you kind of handle that case flow uh, or, or, you know, how do you differentiate between those cases in your line of work? You're so funny because that example you gave, I've had that. <laughs> the beating each other Two okay. brothers beating each other up. And it was like, I was like, what is this? Like, this is silly. And then reading into it, I was like, nope, it's family violence. Because this guy has a history of doing this to the siblings, the mom, the dad. Like, he's just a violent son of a gun. Um, so, yeah, I, I, what, what Alana said is very, very uh, real. Uh, family violence is a different thing from an interpersonal violence. Interpersonal violence is what we think of when we're talking about or what we talk about in the context of like the Ray Rices, right? When we're mm -hmm. talking about people in a romantic relationship, that there is somebody absolutely dominating the other and 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 um, enforcing their will on that person. Family violence to me is a lot broader. It's a lot, it's a lot more difficult, but it's a lot broader. Um, mm -hmm. When we talk about somebody who's beating a loved one in a family context, that is likely not somebody that I I believe is going to be rehabilitated. That is somebody who has made a lifetime, a lifetime decision that I will be the person to dominate each and every one of these people in this household. And I will do so by fear, by coercion, by violence, by whatever I need to use. That is a person, that's who you are. That's who you are. Um, when we talk about interpersonal or, or romantic partners having um, a domestic abuse situation, sometimes you do have people who are just, that's who I am and that's just what I'm about. But a lot of times there is something driving that that needs a psychological um, evaluation, right? Mm -hmm. I'm either scared to lose you. I've never been in love like this before. Um, I don't know how to love because this is what I've seen everybody do around me. And I think those people, a lot of times you can change. Not every time, not every time, but there are a lot of them that you absolutely can change. And so when I am looking at those cases, a lot of times it, I, I do look at those very differently, right? If I'm dealing with just a person who is violent within the family context, brothers fighting each other, I got to be very careful, right? Jurors don't like that. Mm -hmm. That's, that to jurors is a family deal. Let the family figure that out. So the history of this person becomes important. What's your relationship with your sister? What's your relationship with your mom? What's your relationship with your uh, cousins? Have there been a lot of calls to the police between you two? Have you been beating this guy up your entire life? You know, at 50 years old, if you and your brother are fist fighting, something's off. At 21, maybe not, right? Maybe not. Um, so I think you do have to look at that very differently than how you would look at um, interpersonal violence. I do think that, um, in a dating relationship, baby mama relationship, marriage, whatever the case may be, your prior partners make or break that case. Um, mm. I need to know mm. what kind of partner you are. Um, I have, I've had it happen in both ways. I've had several times where you go back and look at all the partners and he's never had any violence or she's never been violent with, there's never been violent 
in any way, shape or form. In fact, they have a great relationship with their ex and have a great relationship with their children. This is kind of a weird, we get together and we just don't know how to act. That's different. That's a very different person than a person who is got a history and been in and out of prison for beating every woman that they've been with. And then they've stopped every person that they've been with after the breakup. That's a completely different person. That is not somebody I'm going to even try to rehabilitate. I need to send you to prison for as long as it takes for you to forget about this person and let them move on with their life. Um, and so you do kind of look at it from that angle. Generally, when I look at my cases, if I've got a domestic abuser in either context and they don't have any history, I am starting at probably misdemeanor probation, maybe deferred felony probation, because my goal is to get you fixed. Yeah. I'm trying to get you fixed. I don't want to break up the family. I don't want to destroy the unit that you have, but you can't continue the way you are. Now, if you've got a long history, you've been in and out of prison, you've got multiple arrests for assault and maybe no convictions, that's a person I'm going to look at quite differently. Now I know that either you're intimidating people into not cooperating, you're either getting away with it because people just, law enforcement or the prosecutors that have handled you before just don't deem this to be worth it. Um, Well, it's going to be worth it for me because now you're going to be held accountable um, in some way, shape or form. So it it really does. There's a lot of dynamics that go into it. You kind of, it is a little bit of a gut check. It's a little bit of perspective from having done it for a while. You can kind of tell who you're dealing with. Um, I've had cases, I have a case right now um, that I'm not going to try to get, I'm going to try to avoid getting into too many facts, but um, it's a female defendant and I've got at least 15 arrests and no convictions. You are a violent person. Okay. You're a violent person. I cannot deal with you the same way I would deal with another offender. You have way too many arrests. I do not care that you weren't convicted. Every arrest is you being violent to somebody. And at some point you're going to up the ante and someone's going to get seriously hurt. So that's a person who's getting a jail time offer period. Um, If we go to trial, I'm asking for jail time. That's it. I'm not going to fool with you at all. Um, Rehabilitation for you is probably not going to be a thing. Um, so it just, it, it really does depend on the history, uh, your prior dating relationship, the severity of the injury. Sometimes that, you know, if, if I don't have any history on a person, but your first offense is stabbing someone. Yeah. You've probably yeah. done something before. Yeah. <laughs> You've probably done a few somethings before. Um, so it, 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 it just, I think a lot of it depends on your perspective from just having prosecuted and seeing, um, seeing the way that offenders generally behave. I also think that if you're going to be an effective prosecutor, you kind of have to be a normal person. A lot of lawyers are just not normal people. They're just <laughs> geeks and freaks and weirdos, right? But you can't be a prosecutor and be like that, not an effective one. People have to believe you and they have to um, relate to you. And nobody relates to thus thou's, wherefore, when, whence, and you know, people don't relate to that, to that mess. And if you're a normal person, you know, when you're dealing with a bully and you know, when you're not like normal people can see that. And, um, you just have to kind of think of it in a normal context. How do I get evidence from that would show that this defendant has a pattern of behavior that isn't an offense report? Maybe if I listen to the jail calls, because if I hit somebody, I'm not calling them from the jail. That's not what I would do, but you know, who would a bully? Hey, get down here and bail me out. That's not normal, mm. right? Mm. If, you know, I don't know what yeah. y'all's relationships are with your mom, but my mommy is still my mommy. And I'm almost 40 years old, okay? And she's still mommy. So if you treat me wrong, guess who doesn't like you? Mommy. So 
if you won't talk to me, I'm going to go find your mom. And mom is going to tell me he's great for her or I've always hated him. Those are just common sense. Wow. You know, you have to be a little bit of a normal person to figure that out. You also have to be normal so people will talk to you. Because yeah. they're not going to talk to somebody that they don't relate to. They just, you'll get a door closed in your face every single time. So you yeah. just have to be normal. That is so interesting. Um, <laughs> the, the, I've never heard it phrased like that, that you have to be a normal person. I love that. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to add that to my little uh, colloquialism index in my head. I, I, I'll give, I'll give you credit every time I use it, but I love that. I just want to, uh, we should get, we should get merch, Steve, that says that yeah. be a normal we, person. We, we still have not uh, gotten the first t-shirt for the society, little, little rabbit trail. So that would be a perfect quote. I want my, I want my credit. For that. Oh yeah, it, we'll, we'll have the we'll have the dash and uh, your name right there. I love right. it. I love it. I mean, it's so important, great. but it's so <laughs> something that people don't think about. You know, uh, Chris, when you were in um, the boot camp, one of the reasons that I think that you were one of the ones that stood out is because you didn't talk to us up here. We were talking right to you guys, and a lot of folks talked right over. I was like, I don't even understand what that means. Like. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I know this phrase. I don't know. What, I don't know what that means. What, are you, what words are you trying to put together? I don't get it. Talk to me. You got to talk to people and you can't be yeah. afraid to talk to somebody different from you. I have sat down with people who have been in and out of prison, who are tatted up, who are all kind of gang affiliated. And I've just talked and I can mm -hmm. get them to talk to me. They're normal people and they just want to be treated like normal people. And most of the time, I don't care how hood, how thugged out how much of a biker of a person you're dealing with. If they know that your intentions are genuine, they are going to treat you with the same respect you treat them. So never, ever, ever take your position out into the streets. That's not what you're doing. You're a normal person trying to do the right thing. It is go. so important. It is so important. Um, so like, I forgot where we started, but yeah, be normal. Do that. No, that's great. No, and I, I thank you for that compliment. I do appreciate it. I. Uh, want to kind of take what we've just been talking about and, and pivot a little bit and ask you about the intersection between like an academic understanding of the law. And I think at the boot camp, one of the things that was really emphasized was you have to know cold the law on the case that you're trying, right? Because that can't be the thing that hangs you up. You have to know yeah, that sure. law. Yeah. But for for the majority of our listeners and, and for us, you know, we're, we are law students right now. Uh, and I can tell you after having come off of a, a quarter here in which I had five days a week, business organizations, five days a week, trusts and estates, Ooh. tax law. I've got a lot I of like, jump right out of this window, <laughs> hearing, those, hearing that those are, oh, Thankfully, thankfully, you know, we we've got great professors and they kept it as interesting as I feel like they could. But my my yeah. point is with all that academic, you know, kind of head mm -hmm. knowledge, how do you how do you balance or where's the intersection between knowing the law and being a normal person and being able to apply it, you know, in the case that's in front of you? So and and I'm really glad you asked that question because. When I became a prosecutor, particularly in Brazos County, which was um, a very different office than what I had been doing in East Texas. East Texas, sometimes you're just very, 
on your own island and you do your own thing. And in Brazos, it's very collaborative. Um, I struggled with that, struggled with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just could not figure out how to, an- like a juror would ask me a question in jury selection and I would answer so far above their head. And it was just, and I was like, but that's the answer. I mean, that's the actual answer. Right. Why are you struggling? Here's the case law. Here's the textbook. Here's the like, case it's law. Right that's what it says. I mean, what is your problem? It took, it really took me about a year to realize it's not your answer, so to speak. It is how you are giving it. Mm-hmm. Um, easiest thing I can say to you, it's a two-part thing for me. I need to really know what it is. What is the law that is relevant to me? What is it? And what is the thing in the law that I need for everyone to understand? Because not all of it is, is important. You know, uh, you don't need to give somebody the full definition of intentional repeatedly. Okay. Right. That's not what's important. What is important is what is out there that could vitiate that intention, right? What evidence is there that makes it look like this may not have been intentional? That's what's important to you. Mm-hmm. So you've got to bring that conversation down a notch. If you can explain it to your mom and your mom understands it, you've you got it. So what I ended up doing a lot of times is my mom was so irritated with me, but I'd be like, mom, we need to have a conversation about self-defense. And she was just like, stop calling me. But I need to be able to explain it to you. Somebody who's not from this country, somebody who has no concept really of the American justice system. And I need you to parrot it back to me in a way that I know that it makes sense to you. And if I could do that for her, then I knew that I was on it. One of the things that I think would benefit a lot of law students is going out there and practicing board hour for that reason. Pick an issue and just practice it in, at, at Thanksgiving. Just practice it with your family members because they're going to ask you a bunch of questions that you're going to be like, I'm answering it. Why are you not getting it? Because I, I just said that. Yeah. I just said it, mom. I don't get yeah. it. You're talking over them. And I think one of the ways that I always do that is when I digest something, what does that mean in like stupid people terms? Cause I, I consider myself stupid people, quite frankly, I have to reread and read and read and read. And I'm like, okay, dumb that down for yourself. What does that mean? What does that mean? What do you think it means? How would that apply if, if what you just thought was the law, right? Yeah. Uh, for me, that is how I do it. I will read something a thousand times and I'll be like, okay, let me sit back. What do I think I just read? <laughs> what do I think that means? And what would happen if that was the actual law? Is that, does that follow the legislative intent? Okay, then I feel good about that. Um, It it, it takes a lot of practice. You really have to know the rule yourself because if you don't know it, you're not going to be able to explain it to anybody. And and I think that that for a lot of y'all, especially in the boot camp, it was difficult because you didn't really know the law. You kind of had a concept of what it was, but you don't know that law. You haven't worked with that law. Mm -hmm. Um, We could spit stuff out to you. We've been working in the field for years, but you're just now coming into it. You're not going to be able to read something and go, okay, let me dumb that down to you. That's just not, it's not practical. You're going to have to sit with it, work with it, break it down yourself, figure out how it applies because sometimes understanding the law and being able to tell somebody doesn't matter if it doesn't matter to this case. You want to make sure everything you do is tailored to your case. Nobody needs to know the law of self-defense if that's not an issue in your case. It just makes no sense. Um, So I think that I personally feel like you're going to live and die by that. If you're in a federal system, you might be able to do that lofty talk. But for the common person whose day you're interrupting to be here talking about this evading, you better be able to explain to them, what does it mean when you say lawful detention? What does that mean? Because they'll ask you. And if you say to them, 
does the officer have probable cause to make the stop? You're going to be in trouble. Yeah. (laughs) Did the officer have specific facts known to him that he could tell you about that meant that this person probably committed a crime? That is a different explanation than do you have probable cause to stop this person? And you got to make sure that you know that. Um, Because I got tripped up once in in my first ward in Brazos County. Somebody asked me that. I said, oh, probable cause. And they were like, what does that mean? Oh, specific and articulable facts that indicate <laughs> criminal activities afoot. And they were just like, okay, I'm done. I, I don't, what does that mean? Like, she just was so frustrated with me. And I was like, I don't know what she wants. I did like, well, I'm telling you the right answer. Yeah. Yeah. So you you have to be about able to do that. Yeah. You're going to have some trouble in board hour the first few times. Great. Embrace it because that's where you learn. That's where you learn. The people will teach you when you're talking above them and they will teach you when you've miseducated them about something because you spent time on something you didn't need to. So you're going to get a lot of, if you get more reps, you're going to get this down cold. You'll get it down cold. Well, there you go. And that's another just quick plug for the things we've already talked about on this podcast, get an internship where you can get in front of a jury, not yourself, but be there while the prosecutors are doing this. Uh, I saw, again, I just got to gotta plug my man, Jeff Janes out in, in Limestone County. He is, he's a gunslinger on Vordire and you just see him go through these processes. Or the other thing that you were mentioning, you know, about what does probable cause look like? I had just come off of my criminal procedure class and I could tell you, and I could write an essay about what probable cause looks like. Good. But when I saw the first body cam video of an, ar- of an arrest, an officer stopping this guy who ended up having, you know, drugs in his truck and all this stuff and to see reasonable suspicion turn into probable cause, turn into an arrest, turn into a search incident to lawful arrest. It just solidified oh and made goodness. real yep. in a way that that an entire nine weeks with our incredible professor Yanowicz, who we love, right? It just reading the book couldn't do that in that same kind of way. And another plug for the boot camp, right? Get as many reps in as you can when the do stakes the are. Camp. It's great. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here. Yep. Uh, because the stakes are, you know, and, and uh, Michael, uh, Michael Morin, who's on our, our episode about the pot, or excuse me, about the boot camp, he said, you know, make the mistakes, right. While the stakes are so low. And that's, that's the exact reason. So I'll I'll get off my soapbox a little bit there, but uh, that's, that's the idea, right. Is you're going to make mistakes. And the thing that I learned uh, from a couple mentors when I was in the ad industry is, you know, fail faster, right. Get through those first entry level mistakes as soon as you can and learn from them and and keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's a great one. Yeah. And put that on the the wall as well. Second, that's the second shirt right there. That's a it's, good one. It's, uh, it's there's not a whole lot going on in my mind at any given time. <laughs> no, uh, but but that not that's added to the added to the one of fifteen things that I can remember. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, we're both coming off of finals, and so I think it's our little hamsters, you know, that run on the wheel in our minds. Yeah. They're a little tired. They've, uh, they, they've earned they've earned a, a rest. Um, the, Gosh, the hamsters I just don't feel bad for you guys I remember those days I remember those days well and you had to learn the law in Louisiana which as our professors tell it is just hey here there and everywhere I, based, I hear based on French law on the French law and not the English common law come on now 
It's absolutely bonkers. You know, it tripped me out the first time I was in court, like actually applying the law. And I was like, where's the civil code? Oh crap. Right. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I guess I have to read the case law. All right. (laughs) It was just night and day, (laughs) night and day. Yeah. Well, uh, we're about out of time and I know you've, your time is valuable and we want to let you get back to what you're doing. Any any parting thoughts, any parting advice? You're on our, our video that we've now published uh, mm-hmm. about mental health. Um, anything there that you want to, as they say in the ad industry, double click on that you want to emphasize? This is going to sound uh, counterintuitive a little bit. Hear me out. <laughs> Get therapy. This profession, it is very difficult on your mental health and you don't even realize it. There's a lot of vicarious trauma in, um, in the workplace in just dealing with people's problems. I don't care what area of law you end up with, you're going to be dealing with people's problems. And there's a lot of vicarious trauma and you need to save yourself. You need to be there and available for the people that you love and the things that you love and for yourself. Um, I think that being a prosecutor or a defense attorney, I think it's a really noble profession. We're trying to uphold the constitution and we're trying to protect the community at the same time, right? Um, And that is not an easy burden to carry. Whether you're doing misdemeanors or felonies, you are carrying the weight of the state and or the weight of this person who's relying on you to protect them from the government or the state. Um, Get counseling, get therapy, it's important. Don't um, hesitate, don't feel bad about it don't feel like you're being weak. I think that one of the reasons that I've been able to stay in the game as long as I have, because I think I'm going on 14 years now, um, is mental health. I'm not about to lose myself because then I can't help anybody, Mm -hmm. right? And I've got family and loved ones too that I want to be here for, that I want to enjoy, that I want to enjoy me. Um, And so don't put your career ahead of your mental health or your family or your loved one or your heart's desires. Do the things that you want to do, have hobbies, have a life outside of the practice because you'll look up at 38 and be like, what have I done? And nobody wants to do that. Um, so for me, that's a major thing right now. You guys are young. You're getting out of law school. You're excited or you're in law school and you're excited and you have all these plans and that's all great and wonderful. Don't lose yourself. Don't lose yourself. That's the thing that's going to make you money. And that's the thing that's going to actually send you even further into your career. Because if you know who you are, if you're grounded and your center, you can do so much more for yourself and for others. So that would be my parting, my parting word. And the thing that I, if nothing else penetrates, I hope that that does. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's, that's, uh, that, that is incredible mm-hmm. advice that, that, um, uh, I, I know I've said it twice now, but got chills, got full goosebumps on the arms like that. That is incredible. That's our that's our litmus test here on the Baylor uh, Criminal Law Society <laughs> podcast. When you give Steve goosebumps, we're we're in good territory. Then we're, then we're working with something. I like it. Yeah. I like it a lot. That's it. Yeah. Well, I I just want to commend you guys. What you guys are doing. Um, I'm not old, but I always talk with the old person. I was telling some friends. I was like, man, these kids, man, these young kids, these youngins are just doing it. They got a podcast and. They're just out here doing the the thing and I'm loving it. What you guys are doing is great. I mean, you know, Baylor hasn't had a history necessarily of having space for criminal law um, interests. And it's wild to me because the best criminal lawyers that I know are Baylor grads. So I just don't, I've never quite understood that, but what you guys are doing in, in just 
getting the society together, forcing this boot camp to, to go through and constantly being full. It's constantly full of people yeah. who are willing to give up their time to do this. Man, you guys are doing a great job. You guys are doing a great job. Keep going, keep at it. Um, if there's anything that I can do to help either of you, to help the program, to help the school, you know my number, dial it. Um, I'm just incredibly proud and incredibly honored to be here with you guys. I, I think the world of you um, and, and all of you guys listening, when you see these two, show them some real love because this is an amazing, this is an amazing idea to use this podcast to promote criminal law and criminal law interests on your campus. Nobody else was doing that. So I think that's amazing. And y'all should be commended for that. Well, thank you. Gosh, I got a blessing over here. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's something that we all felt strongly about kind of for those very reasons, right? Because we believe so strongly in the good that defense attorneys and prosecutors alike do for the community. I mean, for my own, for myself, I'll just say, you know, I, I spent so much time in an industry where money was the driving factor. And I just, it was never enough rocket fuel for me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't break the orbit of what, what yeah. impact is this? What does this mean? You know? And so coming to law school and having my own personal experiences that drove me here when I, when I landed and I got to talk to professor Alpert and I was like, okay, hey, yep, I'm going to be a prosecutor. This is what yeah. we're doing from there. You know, I just, I was like, what, what good can we do here? You know, if we're, if we're about doing good in the community, this is our community. Yeah. What good can we do? And it's just, it, it's fun. We have a lot of fun and we get to talk to amazing people like yourself, you know, who, who come on and, uh, we we are talking to Ryan tomorrow, and we've got some other folks, you know, that we're gonna, that we've got interviews with. But whether this outlives us, whether this continues after we're gone, we just want to do good where we can and when we can. I think you guys are doing an amazing job, and I would personally be very interested in hearing a podcast about your transition from law school into the into uh, the practice. But you know, I'm just gonna throw that out there for you guys. I think it's a great idea. Hmm. I, well, no. I do love the sound of my own voice, so more of that. <laughs> Let's, you're already uh, a prosecutor. If you love the sound of your <laughs> voice, you're already a prosecutor. When? I just put that on my resume. That's very tough. <laughs> I promise. I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> I love it. Akua, love it's it. been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming Guys, on. I feel like we've gotten an absolute feast of, <laughs> of intellectual and, and emotional knowledge and and it's been incredible. So thank you so much. We really appreciate thank you. Guys, I really appreciate your time. Thank y'all. Well, likewise. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being on the podcast today again. No worries. Thank great. You. Well, listeners, thanks so much for joining us for this very special episode. We're going to leave it there for now. Um, stay tuned for more great interviews just like this one. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.